The world is wild and wonderful. There's so much yet to know. So here we are with questions. It's a what in the Sam Hill show. We've done the math. We've read the books. We've searched through archives. Oh, we're nerds and we're letting our freak flag fly. Letting it fly. Oh, we're nerds and we're letting our freak flag fly. Welcome back, y'all, to another episode of What in the Sam Hill podcast. My name is Erin, and this is where I nerd out over the mystical, preternatural, and downright weird, because I want to understand the inner workings of the universe, and I assume you do too. Um, have hope you are having a wonderful Friday afternoon. I am. I've got some whiskey. We're going to have fun with this. I... Um, I've been down the last like couple weeks. Um, well, really, I only had it for like two days, but I was out with COVID. My husband had COVID. His parents had COVID. Um, and really, when I say COVID, it was the flu. It was, it felt like a flu. It sucked. It was awful. Not a big fan, but it was not the end of the world. Uh, it just means that I have not had Christmas yet. And actually, my kid was quarantined out of daycare until today. So this is kind of the first time I've been able to sit down and uh, and record a podcast. So that's been fun. And uh, oh, and she's like about to start walking, getting into everything. It's really, uh, it's a fun time, but also a really busy time. So today we are going to be talking about zombies, which to me is like, so frustrating, but so cool. Um, and I hate that people don't know about zombies because everyone, well, I say people don't know about zombies. Everyone knows about zombies, but they have no idea about real zombies. What they know is, uh, the Hollywood eating brains kind of zombie. And that's just, well, it's really cultural appropriation. Uh, I mean, I have a, um, and some of the like, whims, you know, these like very minor examples that people get very upset about for, in my mind, no real reason. But zombies, it blows my mind no one's talking about this. Or, you know, the mainstream is not talking about this. Zombies are not something that just got pulled out of nowhere. It's not something like Dracula where it's been taken from Eastern European lore that then um, you know, got remade thousands of times based on the Bram Stoker model. This is something that comes from Haitian voodoo. This is a religious topic, to be honest. And it has, it, it came into the, um, kind of, uh, Hollywood lexicon about a hundred years ago and has just been degraded past that. Um, and there's a few different possibilities as to why, um, if you're within the conspiracy community, you'll have heard the phrase before that the, the elites will never forgive Haiti for a successful slave revolt. Um, and I do find that interesting. One thing about the slave revolt in Haiti is that it was taking place at around the same time as the French Revolution. There's a lot of overlap there. And, um, obviously with 
you know, the slave revolution, uh, the slave revolt and the French revolution, both, you know, we've put time periods on them, but that kind of build up doesn't start, you know, one day. It's, it's something that's been going on for a while. And it's something that would take the French government's attention, obviously, in two directions. So you have to wonder if, if the American slaves or something else, um, some other country, had revolted, you know, in the middle of the Revolutionary War, would it have been successful? Well, I mean, maybe. It's not exactly the same, obviously, because, hey, you know, whereas we were fighting the American Revolution on American soil where the slaves were, the French Revolution was occurring in Europe, and then obviously then you've got the slaves in Haiti, so it's it's a truly divided uh, geographic uh, it's a geographic divide in addition to the, you know, divided attention. And so it wouldn't be the same as if the Americans were um, in the same position. But it is something to consider. Why was Haiti successful where no one else, uh, no one else was? And also, you know, why, why didn't anyone else try to, why didn't the American slaves try to revolt in the middle of the revolution? You know, I mean, those are, those are things to to consider. And then the other thing that I, uh, I want to mention as relative to the slave revolt is it, it may be that this is one of the reasons why, um, the zombie practice developed because you've got this power vacuum and you've got a situation where you no longer have workers for your plantations. One thing we'll talk about is the fact that zombies um, in the Haitian voodoo religion or Haitian voodoo, um, you hear different variations of the terminology depending on who you talk to, but um, those the zombies are made to work on plantations. And it reminds me of the British Royal Navy pressing sailors by shanghaiing or kidnapping, really. Um, but you can't just kidnap somebody to create a workforce on land. You need them to remain docile versus like once you're at sea, you're at sea. That's why shanghaiing worked so well for um, for sailors is because, well, once you're on the ship, you're trapped. Um, you don't have that same option on land. And so do you then create this docile zombie workforce um to have the same function but have it be successful on land i don't know um it's something we will discuss but to get started i want to read this article from the winnipeg tribune and it's from august 18th 1928 and this is like the first um one of the first examples of the legend of the zombie in the uh, in the American, well, actually Canadian, but we'll cons- just say Western popular press, um, because obviously it was not published in just one newspaper. It was not published in just one state. Uh, or even just one country. Um, but the author here is W.B. Seabrook, and he is an extremely controversial figure. Um, he is known for being an explorer and an author and, and writing about his exploration specifically, but he was also an occultist. 
And he had a, a habit of getting into, um, or I wouldn't even say habit. What he did in Africa is that he got on with a tribe that was practicing ritual cannibalism. And he claimed that he practiced this, but then it came out later that actually he didn't. Um, the tribe would not allow him to partake of their ritual cannibalism. And so instead, what he did is that he went to a uh, hospital, I believe, and acquired some uh, human tissue samples from the hospital and cooked and ate them of his own accord. I question that too. I mean, that's when you start walking that type of thing back, uh, I feel like you probably never did it to begin with, but obviously that sensational headline made its way around the world in the 20s, and he was um, really controversial as a result. Uh, he ended up committing suicide um, by drug overdose, but he was responsible for introducing the concept of zombies to popular culture, um, first in these newspaper articles and then in his 1929 book um, that it was, well, it was published in 1929 and it was called Magic Island. I'm sure it was written about in the same time as these articles, but um, as far as publishing it goes, it was in, in 1929. And that was then turned into a movie in 1932 called White Zombie. And that is what was the um, impetus for the zombie phenomenon within Hollywood, uh, even though it became so something very different from what was originally described both by Seabrook and then in, um, in the White Zombie movie. But this is kind of where it started. So let's read this article. And, uh, and oh, just as a, a note, there's going to be some language in here that uh, it would not be considered kosher in 2022. Obviously, um, this was 100 years ago. The lexicon was different and people were a little more racist. But uh, it's going to be way too hard for me to try to bleep out as we go. And I also, I feel like we should be honest about where we came from. Um, I don't know that we should necessarily just uh, bleep out things because the lexicon changes. It's just the nature of the, the beast. Anyway, so let's get started here. Pretty mulatto Julie had taken baby Marianne to bed. Constant Polynice and I sat late before the door of his thatched clay-walled house, talking of fire hags, demons, werewolves, and vampires, while full moon slowly flooded the ravines and mountain gorges. His habitation, high among the central mountains of Lagonave, uh, marked one of the most isolated spots in the West Indies. No maps or surveys, old or new, marked the narrow trail by which Faustine Workus and I had climbed on unshod Haitian horses the week before. Constant Polynese, however, was no common jungle peasant. He made frequent trips across the bay to Port-au-Prince and sp spoke sometimes of installing a radio. A Haitian farmer, born and bred, he was familiar with every superstition of the mountains and the plain, yet too intelligent to believe them literally true, or at least so I gathered from his conversation. 
As Polynesia talked on, I reflected that these tales ran closely parallel not only with those of the Negroes, but the medieval folklore of white Europe. Werewolves, vampires, and demons were certainly no novelty, but I recalled one creature I had been hearing about in Haiti, which seemed to me exclusively local, the zombie. It seemed, or so I had been assured by Negroes more credulous than Polynes, that while the zombie came from the grave, it was neither a ghost nor yet a person who had been raised from the dead. The zombie, they said, is a soulless human corpse, still dead, but taken from the grave and endowed by sorcery with a mechanical semblance of life. It is a dead body which is made to walk and act and move as if it were alive. People who have the power to do this go to a fresh fresh grave, dig up the body before it has had time to rot, galvanize it into movement, and then make of it a servant or slave, occasionally for the commission of some crime, more more often simply as a drudge around the habitation or the farm, setting it dull, heavy tasks, and beating it like a dumb beast if it slackens. As this was revolving in in my mind, I said to Polynesia, Let us talk of zombies for a little while. I wonder if you can tell me something about this superstition. I would like to get at some idea of how it originated. My rational friend Polynice was deeply astonished and hurt. He leaned over and put his hand in protest on my knee. Superstition, Mr. Seabrook? But I assure you that this is not a a matter of superstition. Alas, these things and other evil practices connected with the dead exist. They exist to an extent that you whites do not dream of though evidences are everywhere under your eyes. At this moment, in the moonlight, there are zombies working on this island, less than two hours' ride from my own habitation. If you will ride with me tomorrow night, yes, I will show you dead men working in the cane fields. Close even to there are zombies. When you also have seen these zombies, with their faces and their eyes in which there is no life, you will not only believe in the poor zombies who should be resting in their graves, you will pity them from the bottom of your heart. A strange thing is that before finally taking leave of La Gonave, I did see these, quote, walking dead men, end quote, and I did, in a sense, believe in them and pitied them, indeed, from the bottom of my heart. It was not the next night, though, uh, though Polynice, true to his promise, rode with me through the Bulls Noir, across the plain Mapu, to the de- deserted, silent cane fields, where he had hoped to show me zombies laboring. It was not on any night at all. It was in broad daylight, one afternoon, when we passed that way again on the lower trail to Plemy. Polynice reined in his horse and pointed to a rough, stony, terraced slope on which four laborers, three men and a woman, were chopping the earth with machetes. Among straggling cotton stalks, a hundred yards distant from the trail. Wait while I go up there, he said, excited and eager, because a chance had come to fulfill his promise. I think it is Lemercy with the zombies. If I wave to you, leave your horse and come. Starting up the slope, he shouted to the woman, It is I, Polynice, and when he waved later, I followed. As I climbed 
clambered up, Polynice was whispering to the woman. I imagine he was reassuring her about me. She had stopped work, a big-boned, hard-faced black girl who regarded me with surly unfriendliness. My first impression of the three supposed zombies who continued dumbly at work was that here was an indefinable something, unnatural and strange. They were plodding like brutes, like automatons. Without stooping down, I could not fully see their faces, which were bent, expressionless over their work. Polynice tapped on one of them. Uh, t- Polynice tapped one of them on the shoulder, motioned him to get up. Obediently like an animal, he slowly stood erect, and what I saw then, coupled with what I had previously heard, or despite it, came as a rather sickening shock. The eyes were the worst. It was not my imagination. They were in truth like the eyes of a dead man, not blind, but staring, unfocused, unseeing. The whole face, for that matter, was bad enough. It was vacant, as if there was nothing behind it. It seemed not only expressionless, but incapable of expression. I had seen so much previously in Haiti that was outside extraordinary, normal experience, that for the flash of a second I had a sickening, almost panicky lapse in which I thought, or rather felt, maybe this stuff is really true. And if it is true, it is rather awful, for it upsets everything. By everything, I meant the rational fixed laws and processes on which all modern human thought and actions are based. Then suddenly I remembered, and my mind seized the memory as a man about to drown clutches a solid plank, the face of a dog I had once seen in the medical school laboratory at Columbia. Its entire front brain had been removed in an experimental operation weeks before, and its eyes were like the eyes I now saw staring. I recovered from my mental panic. I reached out and grasped one of the dangling hands. It was calloused, solid, human. Holding it, I said, Bonjour, compère. The zombie stared without responding. The black wench, La Merci, who was their keeper, now more sullen than ever, pushed me away. But I had seen enough. Keeper was the key to it. Keeper was the word that had popped naturally to my mind as she protested, and just as naturally the zombies were nothing but poor, ordinary, demented human beings, idiots, forced to toil in the fields. It was a good rational explanation, but it is not the end of this story. It satisfied me then, and I said as much to Polynice as we went down the slope. At first he did not contradict me, even said, doubtfully, perhaps, As we reached the horses before mounting, he stopped and said, Mr. Seabrook, I respect your distrust of what you call superstition and your desire to find truth. But if what you were saying now were the whole truth, how could it be that over and over again, people who have stood by and seen their own relatives buried have months or years afterward found their relatives working as zombies and have sometimes killed the man who held them in servitude? Polynice, I said, that's just the part of it that I can't believe. The zombies in such cases may have resembled the dead persons, or even been doubles. You know what doubles are, how two people resemble each other to a startling degree. But it is a fixed rule of our reasoning that we will never accept the possibility of a thing's being supernatural, so long as any natural explanation, even far-fetched, seems adequate. 
Well, said he, if you spent many years in Haiti, you would have a hard time to fit this reasoning into some of the things you have encountered here. As I have said, there is more to this story, and I think it is best to tell it very simply. Among the Haitians themselves, there is no clearer, scientifically trained mind, no sounder, pragmatic rationalist than Dr. Price Mars of Petition, er, of Peschenville? My brain wants to say Petitionville, but it's Peschenville. When I sat later with him in his study, surrounded by hundreds of scientific books in French, German, and English, and told him of what I had seen and of my conversations with Polonese, he said, My friend, I do not believe in miracles nor in supernatural events, and I do want to sh- do not want to shock Anglo-Saxon intelligence. But this Polonese of yours, with all his superstition, may have been closer to the partial truth than you were. Understand me clearly, I do not believe that anyone has ever been raised literally from the dead. Yet I am not sure, paradoxical as it may sound, that there is not something sinister, something in the nature of criminal sorcery, if you like, in some cases at least, in this matter of zombies. I am by no means sure that some of them who now toil in the fields were not dragged from the graves in which they lay in their coffins, piously buried by their mourning families. It is then something like suspended animation, I asked. I will show you, he replied, a thing which may supply the key to what you are seeking. And standing on a chair, he pulled down a paper-bound book from a top shelf. It was nothing mysterious or esoteric. It was the official code penal, or in English, penal code, of the Republic of Haiti. He thumbed through it and pointed to a paragraph which freely translated read, Article 249, The employment of substances which do not kill, yet produce in a person a lethargic state more or less prolonged, shall be considered an attempt upon his life. No matter how these substances have been administered, nor what have been the consequences, if in consequence of this lethargic state a person has been buried, the attempt shall be held murder. So, what you see here, and I just want to touch on some of these ideas, you've got a writer who is. I would say an untrustworthy source, but it is something that it is um, known in Haitian culture. It's known in, in voodoo circles. It's known um, across, you know, a few different sources. Now Um, at the time, this is just the person bringing it to uh, the population at large of America and Canada and all that. Um, I don't trust Seabrook's explanations um, because he is a unreliable narrator, shall we say, um, unreliable reporter. I mean, he's he's here for the pizzazz of it all, so it behooves him to add some pizzazz. Um, this is actually one of those these things that kind of made his career. So why would he not? dress it up a bit. Um, but he did mention a few kind of theories, one of which being doppelgangers. He called them doubles, but we call them doppelgangers. Um, and then 
this notion of the front brain, um, we'll come back to that, but the frontal lobe comes up again and again in discussing zombies. And so that's something to note here. Um, and then also just this idea of, is it death and resurrection or is it, um, a false death and false resurrection? So we will, uh, try to address these things as we go, but that's the introduction of zombies to American and Canadian culture. How to make a zombie. Um, I, I read a book, <laughs> uh, by a voodoo practitioner or a proclaimed voodoo practitioner. It looked from his author photo that he was, um, a white American. And I'm not going to say that white Americans cannot practice voodoo, but I would say that it's going to be a little more legend than, than fact, just because of, um, the notion that this is not going to be a person who's like from Haiti actually, uh, um, getting these, these ideas straight from a voodoo priest or anything like that. But I do want to talk about some of the things that they discussed in that book. So they discussed this, um, the idea of a zombie actually being in two forms, one being the physical zombie and another being an astral zombie. And the physical zombie is more like what Seabrook was, was describing in his, um, article here. And then what you would think of as a zombie and Per this book, physical zombies are people who have had their frontal lobes of their brain destroyed by blowfish poison to create essentially this automaton without free will. On the other hand, astral zombies are souls that have been split by the voodoo loa Baron Samidi on behalf of a voodoo practitioner who uses the split part of the soul to perform spiritual tasks. Um, astral zombies are considered more temporary. The soul eventually is released and rejoins the other part in the afterlife. Baron Zamidi, who is like the angel of death, cannot be contacted directly. So the voodoo practitioner must work through Papa Legba, who would be like the voodoo equivalent of St. Peter. Um, but the main thing that I want to discuss in this um in this book and in this context was the cope because i was i was not shocked by the descriptions because i already knew about them but the explanation of why this was an acceptable practice is pretty pathetic in my opinion again opinion right um I am not a voodoo practitioner. I don't come from that religion. I don't have any family that comes from that religion. I come from a conservative Christian background. So I'm going to see it differently than these people would. But I do think there is such thing as universal good and universal evil. And so I feel like I can comment on this, even though I do not come from this background. But Based on what the author was saying, they recognize 
that creating a zombie, whether physical or astral, is a torture and a suffering on the soul. Um, and you know that this can happen both because both the physical and the astral happens because you split the soul from the body. And with the physical zombie, you're working with the physical body that's left over. And the astral zombie, you're working with the soul that's pulled out. Um, but either way, they recognize it as torture. But the author takes solace in the fact that it isn't permanent. And also, the person was probably bad in going to hell anyway. <laughs> um, According to their lore, Baron Samidi will pick a soul that he doesn't like, which the author suggests means that they were bad during their lifetime, which, okay. Um, but then the author also acknowledges that the voodoo practitioner can select the soul they want to split for the purposes of creating a zombie. So it, it, it really seems like it's just an straight up evil practice that's being explained away as, oh, well, they deserved it. Um, because sure, the voodoo practitioner may be actually choosing the soul that they do this to, but Baron Samidi wouldn't allow it to happen to a soul that wasn't a bad soul. And I just don't feel like that. I don't know. I couldn't square the circle. It felt like they were um, acknowledging that they can really torture another person, but that it was okay because um, the person was probably evil. And I don't, I don't know that probably is a good enough justification in my mind for this. Um, but again, I mean, different background. I come from a very different, uh, a different place in life, but mm, it gave me the heebie-jeebies, uh, in more ways than one. Um, but one thing I do want to talk about is that they mentioned that the physical zombies are people who've had their frontal lobes destroyed by the blowfish poison. So, um, this author was contending or agreeing with this idea of a false death and a false resurrection rather than a true death and resurrection of a physical zombie. So that is something that's interesting is that, um, the legend is more like a death and res a true death and a true resurrection. But when it comes to, the actual practicalities of it, it's probably more like a, um, a false death and false resurrection. So now I want to talk about Clairvius Narcissa because he is probably the most famous zombie ever recorded. Um, Clairvius, he, he's not the only. There have been other zombies or people that supposedly were zombies who have come forward over the years and, and done, you know, the, um, the circuit of talk shows or newspapers or tabloids, whatever. Um, but Clarius, I would say is probably, if not the first, one of the first and, certainly the most famous he's really the guy that like everyone points to when you're talking about as a story of a person who um 
was supposedly a zombie. Uh, but it's just, it, it is a fascinating story and it gives us a little bit of context. I do think that, uh, to me, I think Clarius's story is credible and I think it's our most credible, um, account of this actually happening to a person. But, um, you know, obviously everything is open to interpretation and, uh, you know, consider it of your own accord, but I would consider Clarius to be a more, uh, credible source than Seabrook. Um, but anyway, so this story comes from the Indiana Gazette in 1985. Um, and a similar story was published in multiple newspapers at the time. But this is just the example I am going to read. So, um, they start with a definition of zombie, which, oh, I will say, the word zombie comes from... Obviously, uh, a range, um, but... There is a, a grouping of languages in West Africa who have have some overlap there because they're all Romance languages. In the same way that there's there's um, various languages within the West African um, grouping of languages that have a word similar to zombie, and that is how it came over into uh, Haitian and then American culture and language. Um, so they start with a definition. A willless, speechless human in the West Indies capable only of automatic movement held to have died and been reanimated, but also believed to have been drugged into a catalepsy for the hours of interment. So, let's get into this story. In 1962, a middle-aged peasant named Clarius Narcissa checked into the Albert Schweitzer Hospital near here. Um, here being Lester, Haiti. Complaining of severe chest pains. Reportedly, he then succumbed to angina. Angina being like a heart attack situation. Two doctors signed his death certificate and he was interred in a public cemetery. Eighteen years later, however, Narcissa was found wandering in the dusty streets of Lestere. His walk was slow and his eyes were vacant, but he was fully alive. He told his astonished family and everyone else who was not afraid to listen that he made a long journey back from the grave. The story sounds as if it was lifted from the script of a Boris Karloff film, yet the particulars in this case seem to be certifiably true. According to all of the available evidence, Narcissa is a documented example of what the everlasting superstitious Haitians call the living dead. In other words, a zombie. All right, laugh if you will. Hollywood has had audiences howling for generations. But the line between myth and reality in the matter may not be so comically defined. In fact, some medical researchers have recently concluded that zombification is authentic, and it can be explained scientifically. One of the researchers is Dr. Lamarck Duyon. 
He is chief of the psychiatric center in the Haitian capital of Port-au-Prince. He has been studying the living dead for 25 years, and he has met, examined, interrogated, and indexed scores of men and women who've claimed to be born again. He says some of them have been frauds, struck by black magic and opportunism. Others have been simply deluded or sick. But there have been a few, like the aforementioned Narcissa. Dozens of people saw him die. Dozens attended his funeral, and now he is resurrected and testifying to the experience. Yes, I died, he says, from a chair in this community, and I remember everything. I even remember being buried in the earth. When they pounded the lid on the coffin, one of the nails struck me on the right side of my face. I felt it. It hurt. I still have a scar on my lip after all these years. Dr. Duyon says Narcissa has internal scars as well. Because he did not simply die and rise again, he was, quote, killed and dug up for malevolent purposes. The psychiatrist says there are black magic priests in Haiti called Bukars, I think is how that's pronounced, who are apparently able to turn people into zombies for commercial gain. How? Duyan thinks they are probably using paralytic poisons. <laughs> Have to scroll back up to the top. And the opinion has been verified and demonstrated by some of the Bukors themselves. One candid priest, Marcel Pierre, said he has, quote, killed an uncounted number of people with powerful voodoo potions that he brews over fires in the jungle. The Bukor won't reveal the ingredients of his concoctions, but there are several possibilities. There is a toad in Haiti, for, for instance, that contains a strong chemical anesthetic, and there is also a fish called a puffer that is made up in part by an om ominous nerve agent that is known as tetrodox tetrodotoxin. So, Dr. Duyon says this may have been what happened to Narcissa. He had a fight with relatives in 1962 over a land dispute, and somebody may have hired a priest to punish him. The priest could have given him a potion, which put him into a trance that fooled Schweitzer Hospital, and he was thereupon buried. Duyan says the priest probably disinterred Narcissus soon after, and brought him, quote, back to life simply by waiting for the trance to pass away. Nerds will flesh around his eyes. That's a very weird way to describe somebody. He sits in the shade outside his home, close to a blind woman who says she's a mambo, a voodoo priestess, and patiently details his terrifying past. I didn't know I'd been poisoned, but I knew the bukor did something to me. I could think, and I could see, and I could feel, but I didn't have any control. I wanted to say something. I wanted to tell everyone I wasn't dead. You see, Narcissa says it's still an effort to move, but he thinks it's more of a factor of age than of the lingering effects of zombification. He says he is in his 70s now. His hearing is poor and his joints are parched. He says he's enjoyed his reprieve, but he believes he'll soon be dying for good. Then again, maybe he won't. Science may be applying convenient logic to some of the ancient peculiarities of this mystical island, but the fantasies still predominate. Predominate. The people in Lestere say that if Clarvius of Narcissa is indeed a zombie, then he will live forever. Hollywood has been right all along.
So we've got a couple different points here um, to to further discuss. One thing I do want to um, say is that, you know, um, Polonese had a point in the original article by Seabrook that white people just cannot possibly imagine this. And I think to some extent that is true. Um, in general, I think because white people have a culture of Judeo-Christianity, we have kind of lost a lot of those superstitions, except for maybe like the Irish with the Banshee and, and the Fae and all of that. Um, but most of the, the English culture in particular has lost its connection to folklore and legend in this way. And so I think the only way that uh, the masses the American masses were able to appreciate zombies was not from a religious sense, but a scientific sense. And that is why Hollywood created this um, basically replacement mythos of the zombie as a um, scientific issue of like a, fl- like a brain eating virus um, creating an outbreak of zombies, an outbreak of the undead. Um, and so I think that is a fundamental difference in culture. And so it's hard for us to believe and understand, but I do think um, that that's interesting that it is this like supplementary or replacement mythos that discusses the eating of the brain in particular. There was another document I found and I think I did not save the link, which is terrible. Um, but that was looking at these different voodoo powders that supposedly were used to create zombies. And of the different powders, there were some things that they all had very similarly. Um, one was the tetrodotoxin of the puffer or blowfish. Um, another was human remains. And I want to briefly discuss the human remains thing. Because we see the eating of brains portrayed in the modern Hollywood versions of movies. And then we see the human remains found in this voodoo zombie powder. And that offhand, like, first thing, ding, 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 reminds me of Kuru which is a prion disease caused by funerary cannibalism in the Foray tribe of Papua New Guinea. And so what they do when somebody dies is they cook them up and they eat them. And in the male cases, or um, like the males within the community will tend to eat more of the muscle tissue and the women and children in the community will have more of a tendency to eat the brain tissue. And eating infected brain tissue in particular causes this degenerative neurological condition that is very similar to mad cavities. Um, and so that is something that, you know, could in theory be related to to what this zombie phenomenon is it could be a possible explanation 
But um, the problems with this are multiple. One, Kuru has a very gradual onset. It would not create an immediate zombie situation. Two, once the symptoms of Kuru are apparent, it's like very quick death after that. So it takes a very long time to show up. But then once it does show up, it's a very quick death. So it's it doesn't really fit the timeline of a zombie and it doesn't really fit the purpose of a zombie because what good is a worker on a plantation if they very quickly die once they start showing these symptoms? Um, and then three, Kuru affects far more than just the behavior of the victim. It The victim also would not be capable of working in the fields while the disease ran its course because it's got a lot of these like, um, you know, physical manifestations. Huntington's disease it's I mean it's not it's not a prion disease it's it's something else but it is a neurological a degenerative neurological condition and in Huntington's disease I mean you get a lot of movement issues well before you get um serious brain issues behavior issues that would you know mimic kind of a zombie mentality so I did want to mention the prion disease, but I, I don't think it lines up. I think it's just kind of a coincidence, but it is a coincidence that we've got this, uh, the eating of brains being portrayed in the modern Hollywood versions of zombies because um, prion diseases are very real and very scary. And, uh, you know, the good news is that if you don't continue some of these practices that you can uh, nearly eliminate it. I mean, the 4A tribe, um, they've been kind of forced into not, at least not eating the brains, if not giving up um, funerary cannibalism completely. And it has dramatically decreased the numbers um, of Kuru victims. But it's just one of those things where... Um, it it's very terrifying because we really do not understand prions uh not nearly like we understand bacteria for example so you know there's a when they have get outbreaks of mad cow disease they kill like all the cows right so it's the same kind of concept is it's very very scary so it but it's it's really not related it's just an interesting overlap let's say so theories one doppelgangers right that's what seabrook threw out from the very beginning is this possibility of doppelgangers well is it really a possibility though the population of haiti right now is 11 million and i will say that 11 million people is a fair amount of people but um, and well, and they're nearly all, uh, black, African, um, relatively similar skin tones. So you're not going to have like 11 million people in an American city where you're going to have, uh, a whole like color spectrum of, um, uh, American descendants of slavery, where you get mixes of European and Black African descent, um, not to mention 
Native Americans and, uh, you know, Southeast Asians and Middle Easterners and Europeans and all the different uh, varieties in between, right? American cities tend to be far more varied in their ethnicity, and so it's going to be a little more um, versus, you know, as opposed to a, a city of the same size in a place that is ethnically homogenous. Um, so you've got a fairly large population, but in 1950, which is the first census, um, it's only 3 million. It's still a pretty densely populated area. I mean, you've got roughly the population of the state of Georgia, which I'm partial to because that's where I live, but it's an area one sixth of the size. But still, I mean, it's just not that big of a population in like 1950 and earlier. Um, you know, obviously it was less than 3 million in 1929 when uh, Seabrook was writing his book. So, Doppelgangers to me is not a super, it's easy to throw out, but it's not necessarily statistically something that makes sense because it is a relatively small population. The idea that you're going to get a doppelganger for every single person that has suggested that this is what's happened to their their family member seems absurd to me. That also doesn't account for the fact that doppelgangers in folklore is... um generally a sign of uh, impending doom so um that doesn't really make sense in this context if the person has already supposedly died versus if you were to see their doppelganger and then they die that would be more in line with the folklore surrounding doppelgangers but just for them to die first and then for you to see their doppelganger and suppose it as a zombie, that doesn't really make sense. So I think it's something that's easy to throw out as a non-supernatural explanation, but I don't think there's a lot to, to back it up. Um, the other idea is just like a trans-like state. This doesn't really seem to make sense. I mean, if it is a trans-like state, I think you would have, you know, for like a... Um, a hypnotism kind of thing, you know, uh, maintaining hypnotism for that long on a person, I think would, um, be pretty difficult. And I, a mass hypnotism, because you got to think like, well, it's not going to be one Bukor priest, voodoo priest to each zombie. I mean, you're going to have multiple zombies to each priest, hypothetically speaking. Um, just because this is not going to be every voodoo priest that is uh, doing this this practice this is going to be a small minority. I would say, well, I would hope, uh, given that it's seems pretty rough on the person. But um, the idea that you know your voodoo priest is going to be out there um, maintaining a trance-like state for all of these people seems kind of slim. Um, not to mention, like, for example, the group of zombies that were uh, being, quote-unquote, kept by uh, Le Merci that Seabrook met. Um, 
she would not be the voodoo priest that was maintaining these people. So why would their hypnotism not wear off in the absence of their hypnotist, right? So I don't really think that just a trance-like state is um, is a valid explanation. The blowfish poison is interesting because it supposedly destroys their frontal lobe, therefore their free will. Now I'll say that the frontal lobe function is still sort of unknown. I don't really think that it's going to end up being that the frontal lobe is as powerful as, say, uh, the shadow with Alec Baldwin portrays, where they can, he like uses the frontal lobe to become invisible to everybody by basically hypnotizing everyone else around them. Um, and then at the end, they cut out the guys. They he can't use his frontal lobe, and uh, he now can't, you know, escape or whatever. But I don't think that's going to be too accurate of a representation of what the frontal lobe is for. Um, but one thing we do know about frontal lobes is that when it goes wrong, it goes very wrong. For example, the most, probably the most well-known example of a lobotomy gone wrong would be Rosemary Kennedy. She was lobotomized for mental health reasons by her father. Um, for what we can, you know, different people have thrown around different theories. It's probably some sort of like bipolar situation. Hard to really know because that lobotomy turned her into a vegetable um, for the rest of her life. I mean pretty horrible stuff. Uh, I, no walking, no talking, and uh, no being able to go to the bathroom on her own, I think, is kind of the state she was in for the rest of her life. So it's pretty horrible stuff. So I'm not convinced by this notion of the blowfish poisoning, the, the blowfish poison destroying their frontal lobe, therefore their free will, Therefore, you had a zombie for essentially the rest of the person's life. Um, or, you know, as this Clarius article notes, the, that uh, they'll never die because he already died and came back to life. Whatever. Um, I don't see you actually reanimating a corpse here. If anything, I think this blowfish poison is probably the best explanation. But... It can't do too much damage to the frontal lobe because if that's the case, how did Clarius break out of that, right? Um, how does anyone come back from that? Once the brain is damaged, it's not known for regenerating. It's not like the liver, right? It's pretty much once you're done, you're done. So I, I don't know that the frontal lobe destruction is really the best explanation um, but it does make sense to have some sort of poison controlling these people because that's something that you could readminister to kind of maintain that state, right? Because, um, for example, I mean, if Clarius was just a zombie and the damage had been done, well, then how did he escape, right? Versus if he was the victim of a poisoning and it was something that had to be consistently uh, re um, administered well it's possible that you know they just skipped a day or um, 
he pretended to drink it and didn't or, or whatever. And so then that were off enough for him to have the ability to escape. That to me makes the most sense because that's something that would be maintained without too much long-term damage. Um, enough to where these people could in theory come back, be recognized, function in some sort of the community in the community. Um, whereas, you know, Rosemary Kennedy was never the same ever. Lobotomy. And most, many lobotomies went very wrong. I mean, let's not just pretend it was Rosemary Kennedy and hers alone. Um, lobotomies were pretty horrible aspects of supposed mental health care for uh, many decades. So I think that's probably the best explanation for the zombie phenomenon right now is this blowfish poison um, being readministered over and over again in small doses. Um, and there may be some hypnotism in the initial death itself to help create that um, supposed, you know, deadly state. Uh, the blowfish poison actually can create a, a, a fake death. And so that is one of the reasons that people really seem to lean on it as an explanation. Um, I actually don't know what the effects would be of small doses of it long term. Um, but if you use a larger dose at the beginning to create that fake death and then, you know, uh, dig them up and wait it out, um, you would think that you'd want to have a pretty specific timeline though, because you don't want to be waiting around in a graveyard. Um, just kind of hoping to not get caught, right? So I would think maybe some sort of antidote. I don't know if one exists, but yeah, perhaps a, a larger dose up front, some sort of antidote uh, once you dig them up and then low doses to maintain kind of a groggy, um, trapped in your own body type of state uh, for years after that or i think clavius was what 18 years i mean that's pretty horrible but i think it's possible um and the other thing too is you know there is some some level of stockholm syndrome with most things that involve kidnapping and i don't know about torture but certainly some, like you know imprisonment false imprisonment um and so i think it makes sense that at a certain point most people would just give up trying even if they had the ability like claria said where he could think but he just couldn't do anything about that thought there was a disconnect between his thinking and his body I think it makes sense that most people would just give up and, and not try to escape after a certain point, right? I mean, 18 years is a pretty long time. So I think there's a poss distinct possibility there. I'd really like to see more information about this. But, I mean, the realistic na nature of it is that that's not going to happen. 
Um, you'd have to be able to talk to the right people and then would that get published, right? But um, but it's really, really fascinating and it's something that is, to me, so much more fascinating than flesh-eating, brain-eating zombies from Hollywood. Uh, I think Hollywood's really done a disservice because this legend is so much more interesting from, you know, just a scientific perspective, from a um, sociological perspective. I mean, modern slavery by way of uh, religious poisoning slash trance, uh, that's pretty interesting. Um, and so I'm surprised more people don't talk about this. I hope they do. I hope they start talking about it. And I hope, for the love of all Pete, that Hollywood stops with this, like, brain flesh-eating grossness. I mean, it's just, ugh. It's annoying to me as somebody who knows what a real zombie is, that they just continue with this. But that's okay. To each their own. Um, but uh, that is the Haitian voodoo version of zombies and all of their origins. So uh, I will see you again in the next episode. Have a wonderful rest of your week.